Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, that was great. Once again, thank you guys up front, guys in the congregation. You can turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, where we left off. Merry Christmas. Hope it was a super Christmas for you as well as we uh, look forward to the new year. Where did I say we were? Mark 8. Since normally I study, uh, I do a lot of my studying on Wednesdays and Thursdays, and Wednesday was Christmas, so I wasn't here, and Thursday my family was out, and so I studied for this back on Monday, and uh, when I went back and I kind of looked at this, I, I, I totally forgot where we were in the Bible. It's been a long week uh, celebrating Christmas and stuff, so uh, we'll see how it goes together. It'll be fun. Um, I, I will remind you of this, something that I think is helpful for all of us to do, uh, particularly we had a little break uh, in our study of Mark, because last week we, we uh, had a, a special Christmas message last Sunday. Um, so I will remind you, look back to chapter 7, and there in chapter 7 it'll, it'll sort of give you the context of where we are, what is going on, and so on. Two weeks ago when we were together looking at Mark, we saw that Jesus had made his way uh, all the way out to the Mediterranean coast. So remember, Jesus primarily ministered around the Galilee. So it's probably 40, 50 miles out to the coast um, of the Mediterranean Sea from where the Sea of Galilee is located. And then he went north another 20 or, or 30 or so miles as well. So Jesus is very much outside of the element of where he had grown up. He's outside of that Jewish region and he's in the area of the Syrophoenicians, the area of Tyre and Sidon uh, and Syria and Lebanon, those places there. Uh, and he's, he ministered there, uh, as we saw two weeks ago, to this woman called a Syrophoenician woman. And again, all that goes with that. The Syrophoenicians weren't Jews. Uh, they, they worshipped the god or goddess Astart uh, and so on. And, and all that came with that. And so this is a woman outside of Judaism. She comes to Jesus, please heal my daughter. And Jesus begins to minister to her. And we spent some time uh, and we considered it. Then he left that area and he made his way to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, taking that long sort of circuitous route. It seems to me trying to avoid the Jews. Doesn't want to interact directly with the Jews and all that comes with it, both good and bad. And he makes his way back to the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. Now we're talking maybe, since he went an out of the, the route kind of way, maybe 100 miles away. And he gets over there, and as soon as he does so, notice what it said in Mark 7.32. It says, they brought to him a man who was deaf, a man who had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epitha, which is be opened. And Jesus then heals that individual. So that's the context now of where we are. We're in that Gentile region when chapter 8 picks up. Let me read the opening 10 verses. It says, Now in those days when again a great crowd had gathered... And they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now, notice, three days and have nothing to eat. If they had anything, they've eaten it already. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. 
and some of them have come from far away. And Jesus' disciples answered him, saying, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And Jesus asked them, Well, how many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, probably with that attitude. They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And Jesus took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they then set them before the crowd. Verse 7 says, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that they, these also should be set before the crowd. And they ate and they were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And Jesus sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples, and he went to the district of Dalmanutha. How about that? Good story, yeah? Good account. Does it sound familiar? It's very similar uh, to the story that is told in chapter 6. I hate to use the word story because sometimes we think, come on, children, I'm going to tell you a story now. There once was a man. You know, and it, it feels fanciful. Um, so I, I try to remember to use the word account because these were actual events that occurred in the history of the world and as Jesus' ministry. But back in chapter 6, we saw that account there where Jesus uh, fed the 5,000, it says. And in some of the version, some of the uh, gospel accounts, it says, not to mention the women and the children that were there. And so oftentimes we'll say 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 people that were gathered there, Jesus fed them. We read that in Mark 6. Here we are now in Mark chapter 8. And it tells us that Jesus fed a crowd of 4,000 people. Now, for some reason, there were Bible people that look at this and say, well, these are the same accounts. I don't get that. They're not the same. Mark, it would be one thing if Matthew told about a group of five and Mark told about a group of four, and then I could see the case. But Mark told about both accounts. And if you read the particular accounts, the story of the 5,000 and the story of the 4,000, there's different events that are going on. One of the differences that's going on, it's a, a different, completely different region of the Galilee, ministering to a completely different group of people. The 5,000 was primarily amongst the Jewish people. This 4,000 here is going to be primarily amongst the Gentile people. And one has suggested, and, and perhaps it's the reason, it may be part of the reason why the, the disciples didn't expect Jesus to feed these 4,000 people. That's something he might do with the Jewish people, but these are Gentile people. And so we'll look at that as we continue to go further. But notice in verses 1 and 2, it says again that a great crowd had gathered. And notice once again, what does that do to Jesus' heart? It moves his heart. It says there in verse 2 that he, he says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now for three days, he says, and they have nothing to eat. In this instance, as opposed to the feeding of the 5,000, we have, as it says, 4,000 people here. Now, of course, if you have 5,000 people, you have 4,000 people. But there is a distinction Mark doesn't point this out, but in Matthew's account of the 4,000, Matthew 15, it says that there ate, those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And so once again, we have an instance where there may be 8,000 people, 10,000 people, 12,000 people, a large crowd that is gathered. And once again, I'm moved by the way Jesus is moved. Because here Jesus has been teaching these people for three days and he's come to the point, he's like, all right, guys, we're going to wrap this up. We're going to send you all on your way. But Jesus knows some of these people have come a great distance. And they've been here three days and at least two evenings. 
And Jesus knows that some of them are going to need food. And he's moved by that. Isn't that something about the Lord? He cares for the needs, physical needs even, of the people that he's ministering to. Such an important lesson for us as we seek to minister to those that are around us in our community. And Jesus' compassion now for this crowd prompts him to act. It's, and I like this, or I appreciate this, because I think it's easy to get into ministry mode and not even think about the people you're ministering to anymore. And you just get kind of busy doing the responsibilities and the tasks. And you don't see the individuals that are there. And so even though there's 10,000 people maybe that are here, Jesus sees each individual need that they have as well. That they're hungry, or they may be hungry, and that they'll, they'll become faint as they make the long trek back to their home. And for Jesus then, it's unthinkable that we would send these people away home hungry. Notice what he says in verse 3. He says, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they're going to faint on the way. It's unthinkable that he would even do such a thing in his mind. And so he raises the issue uh, with his disciples. He calls them to himself. I think a lot of us, we're nice people, most of us here, right? We're good people. And needs of people move our hearts. We're like, oh, that's too bad. That's a shame. And we oftentimes stop there because the task is too big. I can't help everybody, so I'll help nobody, right? And it wouldn't be fair if I help him, but not her. And so we don't help anybody. Jesus is moved by their needs, and that moves him to action. I think he would have us be moved to action more. Looking again at verse 1, it says there, he calls his disciples to himself. You look down in verse 3 then, he identifies the problem. So he calls the disciples, and I assume he's hoping they already saw it themselves, but he calls them to himself and he identifies the problem. Look, these people are hungry, and then he leaves the problem with them. I, I sort of imagine here, I don't know, but I'm imagining here that Jesus is waiting for one of them to say, oh, I know what we can do. Remember two chapters ago, Jesus, you fed the 5,000? Let's do that again. Let's see what we got. We'll bring it in and you can turn it. But unfortunately, that never occurs. And they reply, notice verse 4, the disciples answer him and they say, well, how can one feed these people with bread here in a desolate place? That's almost what they said the last time. You know, if we sent them on their way, we'd have, we'd have to have 200 days wages to feed all these people or whatever. And they say, how could one feed all these people in a desolate place like this, like this place? It seems to me, maybe, they have forgotten the feeding of the 5,000. Now, you would never forget an experience like that, would you? <laughs> of course you wouldn't. Now, in our Bibles, it's two chapters ago. In reality, it happened about a year ago. Uh, in, in our study of things here. It, it happened about a year earlier. And so are there things God taught you a year ago that you've forgotten? Sure. It, it happens. Or we remember, yeah, I remember the details of it, but we fail to apply it to the present circumstance. It seems to me that is what's going on here. They had a lesson. It was a great lesson, but they're failing now to apply it to this present need that they have. I don't think they completely forgot that Jesus fed the 5,000. Because look at verse 19 for a second here. Jesus asked them a question. It's later on, a different set of circumstances. But he asked them a question. He says, look, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? And they answer right away. They don't say, huh, I don't really remember. I don't know. Let me check my notepad. or what I was journaling that day. You know, they, they don't go back. They, they say, it was 12. We remember so they remember the event, 
but they're failing to apply that to this present experience. And again, I think that would be remarkable to us if we didn't do the same things in our own lives, where we fail to apply some of the things God previously taught us to the present circumstances so that we can walk in faith. I shared the example before. I think one of the benefits of fasting in my spiritual walk, particularly when I was early on in my spiritual walk, one of the benefits of it was it taught me the valuable lesson that I can say no to myself and I won't die. So that when I face other circumstances, when I see that thing lying there and I want to take it, I can say no to myself. When I'm drawn to a temptation of some sorts, I can say no to myself and I will not die. You apply the lessons you've learned from past experience to the present circumstances that you're facing. The disciples aren't doing that here. And so just like them, we do this sometimes. A new need arises and we begin to freak out. Even though the Lord has provided again and again and again, we begin to freak out about this particular circumstance and we, we fail to apply. So Jesus calls the disciples and he calls them to himself. He identifies the problem. The people are hungry. They say, you know, get them out of here. He ignores that. And then he says this. He says, well, how are we going to, this in so many words, how are we going to solve this problem? He says to them, he says, well, how many loaves do you have? As if each of them might have, you know, a thousand loaves in their backpack or something. Well, we put it all together. We got 12,000 loaves. It'll be good, Lord. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. He, he raises it, though. You know, how many loaves do you have? How are we going to solve this particular problem? And they answer seven. Now, what I, what I appreciate, one little thing here that I want to draw your attention to. Back in Mark chapter 6, when Jesus fed the 5,000 people, you recall, where did the loaves and the fish come from? It was from a little boy. You guys are good students. It was from this little boy, and they stole his lunch, and they gave, no, the kid offered it. He said, I got a little lunch here. You can have it. And so they took that little boy's lunch, and they gave it to Jesus. So in that instance, the multitudes were fed by somebody else's provision. In this instance, Jesus says what? How many loaves do you have? And in this instance, somebody's going to be fed by their provision. And I think this is important. Because a lot of times we want to serve others and meet everybody else's needs with other people's provisions. I don't want to use my own provisions. I'd love to go on that mission trip. Who's paying for me to go? I'm not willing to put my own money out to go on that mission trip, but if other people send me, then I'll go on that. Or we call for something has to be done to help the poor. Great. Head on down to the streets of Trenton. There's plenty of poor that are out there. Head on. You can go to the mayor's office in Ewing Township and say, are there any people in our community that are in need? And they'll give you people that have homes but still have needs. And then you can go meet that need. Whoa, whoa. I don't want to meet that need with my own money. I'll meet, you give me money and I'll go meet the need for them. I'll go shop for them and things like that. You see what I'm saying? Jesus would have you meet the need too out of your own pocket and to go bless these people. And that's what these guys here, he asked them to be the ones to make provision. He says to them, what do you have? Essentially saying, look, don't pass this off to somebody else. You meet the need. And he says, how many loaves do you have? They say, we have seven. And just as he did the last time, he directs the crowd. And the last time he told the disciples to direct the crowd, he says, go, have everyone sit down. Uh, in the other case, it was in 50s and in 100s. He says, have the people um, sit down. And the disciples in verse 6 they begin now to distribute the loaves. We read that. It says, And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them. He gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. Now, are seven loaves going to be enough for 4,000 men? 
No. So when this process begins, all of the resources aren't presently there. The circumstances for ministry aren't perfect when Jesus tells them to have everybody sit down and they begin to distribute. But notice Jesus moves forward in ministry anyway. And then watches, the disciples get to watch as well, how the provisions will begin to manifest themselves. All of the provisions aren't in place until they start ministry. Does that make sense? Did I say that clearly? They don't wait for all of the provisions to be in place to begin ministry. They begin ministering and watch how God's going to provide the provisions. And so what's the lesson? The lesson is ministry doesn't have to wait, and it should not wait until all of the provisions needed to meet the need are in hand. Because if you wait for that to be the case, all right, we need a million dollars. We're not going to do anything until we get a million dollars. And you wait for a million dollars to be in hand, you're probably going to be waiting until you die. And the million dollars isn't going to come. So if you wait for it to be the case, you're likely never to get started. Let me, let me apply it this way. You want to start sharing your faith with people. You have a friend, you care about your friend, you want to see them come to know the Lord in the same way that God has grabbed a hold of your heart. But as you desire to share the faith, you feel like you don't have all the answers. And so what can you do? Well, you could wait until you get all of the answers to any possible question that they might ask of you. Or you could just begin to minister and trust that the Lord will provide for you to answer the questions that they may have or, or be able to say in humility, look, I don't know the answer to that. And then go do a little research and see if you can come up with that particular answer. You can recognize that I may not be equipped perfectly, but I'm equipped enough. And I can go and I can begin to minister. You know, I look at here at Calvary Chapel, we have a, a ministry that reaches out to the homeless of our community, Restoring Hearts Ministry. And I see what they are doing with those that are struggling with homelessness in our community. I know that many of you are involved with that. Some of you are making meals on Sundays and things like that. And how glad I am that when Eric Leidick started that ministry almost 10 years ago now, and the others that have been called to come alongside of him, I am so glad that they didn't wait until they had all the necessary provisions to eradicate homelessness. Because if they had waited for that, what would they have needed? Millions of dollars? Tens of millions of dollars? And have they waited, how many people would still be waiting? How many of them would still be waiting? And there are a lot of lives that would not have been touched these last 10 years. What Jesus does is he identifies a problem here and then he turns to his disciples and he says, what do you have that can meet the problem? Their response is, well, we have seven loaves of bread. And then notice that after he had multiplied the loaves, they had been distributed. Notice after all of that, it says, and they had a couple of small fish. Now, somebody was hiding these things in their pocket. And they didn't want anyone to know. But it seems to me, they see what Jesus did with the bread, and because of that experience, they say, you know what, I'm going to give him my fish and see what he can do with the fish as well. I wonder if they, wanted, they were selfishly holding him back, maybe. Or I wonder if they thought, well, I only got two fish. What can he do with two fish? But they saw what he did with seven pieces of bread or loaves of bread, and they were inspired to give. Whatever their reason for holding back was, after seeing what the Lord does with the bread, they're more than willing to offer the fish, that he could use them as well. 
I think many times we don't do ministry because we, we reason, well, what, what magnitude of thing can I actually do? I only have two fish. I can only do this little small thing here. And so we do nothing, as I said earlier, because we, we perceive it is such a small thing. Somebody here said, I got two fish. What can you do with them? And Jesus, they were part of the great miracle. And so I, I just want to encourage you here. Look, I know a lot of us in this room, if not all of us, and I, I feel I know us pretty well. If most of us, if we had a million dollars that came our way, I, I get on a Christmas, one of our aunts and uncles gives us lottery tickets, and I don't typically buy lottery tickets, but I gladly accept them for free. Uh, and uh, aunt and uncle give me these lottery tickets, and I'm scratching off there. And let me tell you, I'm hoping for a $200,000 winner, and I'm, I'm talking to the Lord about it. Lord, this would be great. You know, you and me together, just think what we could do with $200,000 uh, or whatever. And, and I suspect many of us, if we won a million bucks in, in that particular way, we had a million dollars come our particular way, I suspect many of us in this room would use it for good things beyond the new car we're going to get and the new house we're going to get and so on and so forth. We would bless other people. We're, we're nice people here. I, I've seen you. I've come to know you here. If we had a million dollars, we would do that. We reason, however... Look, there are so many needs. A million dollars can make an impact. 25 bucks, what kind of an impact is that going to make? And so we hold back the 25 bucks, don't we? I'm not trying to guilt you into giving money. I'm not going to have a big pitch at the end here. What I'm just saying is when we feel like our gift can make a big impact, we're all in. If we feel what kind of an impact it's going to make, we're not all in any longer. Somebody here had two fish. He brought them out, and Jesus used them. They saw what Jesus did with the bread. They bring out the fish. It's a sweet picture. Verse 8 goes on. It says, Now they ate and they were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, and there were seven baskets full. It strikes me that both times we had one of these big feeding things, Jesus is very careful to pick up all the leftovers. He's not into wasting things here. I don't know what the lesson is there. Don't waste food is the lesson here. But here, back in the... the passage in, in Matt, or Mark 6, they pick up 12 basketfuls, you may recall. Here it says they pick up seven baskets with uh, the fragments here. Now, one of the things you should be aware of is, and it's not that important, I guess, but there, there's a, two different words that are used in the Greek language for baskets. So in the feeding of the 5,000, the word that is used there essentially describes like a lunch pail a lunch box of sorts, a, a brown bag. And so in that particular passage, each of the disciples went and filled 12 individual lunch bags. They each got their own little lunch for the next day. In this instance, it says they picked up seven baskets full. It's the same word in English. It's a completely different word in uh, the Greek language. That word for basket is more like, um, like a hamper. If you have a, a wicker hamper or something with your clothes, um, that you bring down to the laundry. Uh, that's the word there is used. I want to show you something. This is found in the book of Acts. Uh, you, you might be familiar with this story. It says, now when many days had passed, the Jews had plotted to kill him. Him is Paul, Saul, Paul, um, Saul, Paul. I'll just keep going until you shake your head, you know. Verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul. So word, you know, Saul became a Christian. Now the Jews wanted to kill him. 
word filters around, you know, hey man, when you get, just before you get to the city gate, there's a mob that's waiting there, they're going to get you, they're going to kill you. And so it says they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill Saul, but his disciples took him by night and they led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. That's the word that's used here in Mark chapter 8. So we're not talking about a little lunch bag or a little lunch pail, we're talking about a big basket. And they, they have seven big baskets, hampers full of the leftover food here that they bring uh, to, that they get to collect. They don't want to waste it here. All right, so please just notice that little difference here. They went from seven loaves to seven big baskets. Jesus had provided and he had done so abundantly, over and above what was needed. Um, file that away because it's going to become important, okay? He had provided over and above what was needed. Jot that down, keep it for later. Verse 9 goes on, and it says, There were about 4,000, and Jesus sent them away. Now, I do want to show you where Matthew says that along with the 4,000, there were women and children as well, besides the women and children. I'm not just making this stuff up. You can read the parallel passages. You can see that here. All right, and so we have 10, 11, 12,000 people. 12,000 people. Again, we are on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. That's the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. It's that area that was commonly referred to as the Decapolis. And I want to draw your attention. It's the last time I'm going to do this uh, during our study of the book Mark, I of Mark, I promise, because I've done it three times now. I want to draw to your attention that the last time Jesus was in the area of the Decapolis is when he... Uh, encountered that demon-possessed man who lived out among the graves. And the people in that community had, had tried to chain the guy up, lock him up, cast him off because there was nothing they could do. Jesus comes in. He crosses the Sea of Galilee. The, people, the demon man, he comes rushing to Jesus. Jesus heals the man. He's clothed and in his right mind. The man says to Jesus, I want to go with you. I'll go wherever you go. I'll do whatever you need me to do. I just want to serve you and be with you. And Jesus says, no, you can't come with me. I want you to go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And the man goes and he tells them. Now, the rest of the people uh, of that community, what do they do? They tell Jesus, get out of here. We don't want you here. You scare us. You freak us out. We don't like you. Get out of here. And so Jesus does. He gets in the boat. That's when he tells the guy to go back to his family and tell him how good the Lord has been to him. Now here we are in the Decapolis, and at at least 4,000 people, maybe 10, 12,000 people, come rushing out to Jesus a year later, and they bring to him this, this situation here. They, they come so they can be taught. You see the difference in that community? And what in one case, get out. In another, you know, help us, please come. We want to hear from you. And what's in between them? The man telling people what Jesus has done for them. One guy sharing his story of what Jesus did in his life has impacted that entire region. I know I've talked about it a few times already here, but don't miss that. When you read we're in that region and 12,000 people come out, don't miss that that man was involved in that. Amen? Good stuff? Just think, one man tells his story and a whole area is impacted. Just the power of a man's testimony, a person's testimony. Share your story of what God has done and is doing in your life.
And people are drawn. Verse 10 goes on. Now immediately Jesus got into the boat with his disciples and he went to the district of Dalmanutha. Dalmanutha. Now we, we don't actually have much archaeological finds for a Dalmanutha. Um, oftentimes archaeologists are out there, they're digging, they find uh, a fragment and it mentions the name of a town and, and so you're able to kind of, oh look, we know where it is. There's really not much out there about a Dalmanutha. But it's interesting, Matthew, when he tells the story, he doesn't call it by the name Dalmanutha. He calls it, and this is Matthew chapter 839, the region of Magadan. You see there, Magadan? And so my, my impression, I don't know this for sure, but my impression is uh, it's like the, the town of Ewing would be Dalmanutha and the county of Mercer would be Magadan, the region there. And so he narrows it down a little closer for us as to where this area was here. Magadan is more commonly known as Magdala. You've heard of Mary Magdalene. Um, that's her. That's her little town there. Uh, Archaeology has just unearthed, maybe about five years ago, uh, the area of Magdala. Uh, and they have been going crazy in Israel, unearthing this place. They found the synagogue. They found a lot of the homes and things like that. Um, they were able to find the base of the synagogue, like the floor, which is this beautiful mosaic um, that is there. Um, so it, it's a pretty great place to go. We do go there when we go to Israel. It's just a sweet spot to stop. They put a hotel up there now, so you could stay there if you wanted to, and so on. So we know where that is. All right, so we don't know where Dalmanutha is, but we know where Magdala is or Magadan is, uh, and that is on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. So they were on the Gentile side, which is on the east. They cross over back to the Jewish side, if you will, of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus, as I had mentioned, as we started today, it seems as if he's been trying to avoid the Jewish section staying away from the hassles and so on of those, and focusing his attention on individuals and on his disciples. And then, of course, you have the situation there in the Gentile region where thousands of people come to him, and he ministers. Well, here in verse 11, back on the Jewish side of things, we read this in verse 11. The Pharisees came, and they began to argue with Jesus. That's always fun. Seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, why does this generation, now that word generation doesn't just mean like these kids, you know, sometimes we think of all oh, this, that generation X or the millennials, that generation, uh, it doesn't just mean that, it, it could also refer to a, a race of people, a genus of people, the Jewish people is what he's referring to here. He says, why, did this gen why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation, and he left them. He got back into the boat, and he went back to the Gentile side. It's more peaceful over there. No one's giving me a hassle over there. We want a sign. Notice that word. It says they, they begin to test him. The word there is translated other places in the Bible as tempt him. You remember when Satan sought to test the Lord uh, there in the beginning of his ministry? The word that it's sometimes translated in our Bibles, Satan sought to tempt Jesus. And that's where you have that story of the uh, the three temptations uh, of the Lord, you know, and turn the stone into bread and come up to the highest pinnacle and throw yourself off the angels to save you, all those kinds of things. Same word that is used here. And so they're trying to test the Lord or tempt the Lord. Show us a sign. Give us a sign. We'll believe that you are the Messiah. Now, 
Jesus had just fed 4,000 men. Maybe they weren't aware of that. Okay. But a year earlier, he fed 5,000 men with a few loaves of bread and some fish. Jesus had all these things we've studied. He'd opened the eyes of the blind already. He healed people that were in the final and last stages of leprosy. He delivered people from demonic possession. And Jesus even raised people from the dead. Not to mention other things that perhaps aren't listed in our Bibles or that you might look at as lesser miracles here. He raised people from the dead, healed people from demon possession, delivered people from the final stages of leprosy, fed 5,000 with a few loaves of bread, so on and so forth. And these Pharisees, fully aware of all these things, have the audacity to say, show us a sign to establish your validity. Again, they tempt him, just like Satan did. Now, anyone in this room truly believe that had Jesus said, okay, everybody get ready, and done a sign that they would have believed in that instance here? You see, the problem for these Pharisees is not that they didn't have signs to verify Jesus' validity. It was their unwillingness to believe what Jesus had already done. And so this isn't about them not having enough information. It's about their unwillingness to believe. It's about the hardness of of their hearts. No matter what Jesus would do, they weren't going to believe him. And at the root of their disbelief is unbelief. Unbelief is at the root of their attitude toward the Lord. It's not that they don't have enough information, it's that they're refusing to believe. And in that state, nothing that Jesus does is going to convince them. You remember a little while back when Jesus delivered a man from his demon possession? What was the response of the religious leaders? The response was, you you know it when I say it, you'll remember. The response was, he does this by the prince of the power of the air. Satan gives him the power. And that's when Jesus was like, why would Satan go to war against Satan? That doesn't make any sense. And he, he sort of addresses it there. So even in that wonderful miracle... They refuse to believe, and they attribute it to something else altogether. They had plenty of signs already. And so Jesus now, it says he sighs deeply. And these aren't his exact words. He says, why does this generation seek a sign? In my mind, Jesus is saying, you're not going to get any more signs. You've got all the signs you're going to get. And he sighs within him. He's grieved by this. Big difference. It doesn't say, and Jesus was mad. He's grieved by their unbelief. It breaks his heart, or at the very least, it touches his heart that these folks are unbelieving because he knows the consequences of unbelief. He, when, when Jesus would go into the city of Jerusalem there on the triumphal entry, riding in on that donkey, you recall, Jesus looks out over Jerusalem and he begins to weep, you recall. And he said, oh, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I have desired to to bring you in like a a mother hen gathers its chicks. I think that's what its wording is here. And he's grieved by it. His heart is broken by their unbelief. He's not mad at them, but he is not going to perform a miracle to convince them. Jesus doesn't do that. Their hearts are already hardened. And their motive is wrong. And so he's not going to do it. But he's grieved. And so it says in verse 13, he left them, he got into the boat again, and he went to the other side. Now remember, I don't know exactly where one point to the other, five miles, six miles across that, that Sea of Galilee, and they, they don't really do anything over there. They get back in the boat, they head to the other side here, 
Now the story picks up, verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring bread, they being the disciples, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus now cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, he said to them, why? I don't know if he said it that way. He says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? He said, do you not perceive? Do you not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. And the seven, he says, for the 4,000, 10 minutes ago, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up then? And they said, seven. And he said, and do you not yet understand? Now, let's go back and look at this a little bit here. Uh, I, I don't know if Jesus does this. I can't help but think that Jesus is, isn't stewing a little bit. You ever stewed? Where you just sort of ruminate over your, that's, that event that just occurred? and you're So I don't know if Jesus stewed. He probably didn't. But he's thinking about it nonetheless. He's thinking about that brief encounter that he had, uh, which is going to move him to say to the disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And so it's on his mind still. Now Mark, he begins this discussion and he, he gives us sort of an aside. It's unrelated to what's going to come, but it causes some things that are going to come. And so Mark says, now you need to know this. You know, I, I just watched The Muppet Christmas Carol. And uh, who was it? Was it Gonzo? Gonzo was the narrator. And Gonzo would tell us every now and again, now you need to know that Scrooge was dead or whatever, you know, and he, he gives us this little hint here. Well, that's what Mark is doing here. Maybe it's a little different, all right? But anyhow, Mark says, now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had on, only one loaf with them. So just keep that in mind, tuck it away, because Jesus is going to say something. They're going to respond on a completely different wavelength. They're thinking about the fact that they forgot bread. Evidently, in their... Uh, haste to get out of Magdala there, Dalmanutha. They just sort of jumped in the boat, and those six, ha seven hampers were just sitting there with bread in it. They didn't take even one of them or get a baggie and fill up some for each of them here. So they leave that there. And Jesus mentions the word leaven. Now, leaven is involved in the making of bread. And so they hear leaven, they think busted. We got caught. He's going to yell at us. It was your turn this time. No, it was my turn the last time. It was your turn. And so they realized we forgot our bread. Jesus says, you missed the point. It's not about the bread, Jesus says to them. He says even, look at verse 17. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? And then I'll go on. And this is like a bonus lesson. This wasn't where Jesus was going with this, but it's sort of this bonus lesson where he says, how many scraps do we have when we fed the 5,000? And like, how much do we need? And how much should we take up? They say 12. How about the case of the 4,000 in verse 20? And they say seven. Then look at verse 17. He says, do you not yet understand? I mean, you learn these things? I'm not talking about the fact that we don't have bread here to provide for you. We could have, we could have one loaf, and I could provide for you 12. I provided with seven loaves for 4,000, with uh, five loaves and two fish for 5,000. We don't even need any loaves. 
and I could provide for you. I could make it work here. It's not about that, Jesus is saying to them. What he really wants to dig into, this was his point. I think we should look into it. Excuse me, I'm sorry. What he really wants to dig into is what he brought up in verse 15. And so he says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the, and the leaven of Herod. In Matthew chapter 16, he'll also add, and watch out for the leaven of the Sadducees. And so he uses sort of this picture, this phrase. One commentator I read, he described it as a one-word parable, the idea of leaven. And they would have known, the disciples, all those folks, they would have known what leaven did. Leaven is a lot like yeast in our day. And it serves the process of going into your baked product and causing it to rise and so on. Now, what they would do, instead of going to the store and buying a bag of yeast, what they would do is they would take a, a, a lump of dough, and prior to putting that in the oven, they would pull a piece of that dough, which has its leaven and it, yeast and it, all that kind of stuff, and they would put it aside for the next one. And that little piece that would go in the next lump of dough would be enough to do what it needs to do in there. Is that making sense? You're picturing with me? And so they know what leaven is. They know what leaven does. Uh, and Jesus says to them in, in a couple different instances, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, watch out for the leaven of the Sadducees, and watch out for the, le the leaven of Herod. A little pinch of dough left over from the previous baking of bread could permeate completely the new loaf, uh, pinch, uh, bit of dough. Making sense? You with me still? I know that was unclear. Leaven in the Bible is used some 20 times. I think it's actually 19 different instances. It's specifically used as a picture of sin. And so there's other times the word leaven is mentioned. But on 19 different occasions, occasions it's specifically used as a picture of sin. The first time we read about it is in Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12 is uh, the story of the, the evening of the Passover. And it says there, For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. And so all the way back in the book of Exodus, the people had to clear out their homes, rid it of all the leaven, and so on and so forth. First instance there. In the New Testament, kind of bookending this, Paul the Apostle would say this. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He's not talking about bread. He's talking about the permeating influence of even just a little, just a little of something, the way it can leaven an entire lump. So what's the leaven then of the Pharisees or of the Sadducees or of Herod? I think it's different things for each of them. The question is, what is the influence of those types of groups that we, that they, run the risk of having it permeate the lives of the disciples? Well, I think most of us here, we could probably call out the answer to the Pharisees. What are some of the tendencies of the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were hypocrites. They put on a great face on the outside, but inwardly, they were full of sin. The Pharisees embraced ritualism. You follow these rules and you will be declared righteous. The Pharisees were self-righteous. Any righteousness that was theirs was their own. Things that they did that would make them right in the sight of God. And the Pharisees were a bigoted people. 
And so when Jesus talks about beware of the Pharisees, remember the Pharisees and the Jews in general, but the Pharisees in particular, they looked down on the Gentiles. They equated Gentiles with dogs. They would wake up and say a morning prayer that said essentially, thank God I'm not a Gentile. They were bigots. And Paul, or excuse me, Jesus here is saying beware of those things. Beware of hypocrisy in your life. Do you ever struggle with hypocrisy? You probably do. I'm sure there are things you would do when nobody is around that you would never think to do when other people are watching. Well, that's bordering on hypocrisy. Ritualism, self-righteousness, all those kinds of things are attitudes of the Pharisees. Jesus says, watch out for those things. Be on your guard against those things. He goes on, he talks about, this is another place, but he talks about the leaven of the Sadducees. Well, the Sadducees are another religious group that are mentioned in the scriptures here. Jesus doesn't come out specifically and say what it was about the Sadducees, and so we just look at them as a people. What kind of a people were they? Well, the Sadducees were the wealthy people of their society, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not anti-wealthy. All right? People can be wealthy, people can be poor, and still go to hell, all right? one or the other, or go to heaven. All right? And so they were a wealthy people, not necessarily a bad thing, but they were a powerful people. They were also a politically connected people. And they were a pseudo-religious people that were self-confident, confident in themselves. The Sadducees were a people that, if you will, they were too smart to believe in things like miracles. That's just something kind of naive people do. Children believe in those kinds of things. And so the Sadducees, very similar to a guy like Thomas Jefferson, who would take his Bible back in his day, he took his Bible, and he ripped out all of the miracles in his Bible. He thought the Bible was a wonderful book, but those cute little miracles, they're children's stories. And he would just focus on sort of those real events that occurred. Well, that's what the Sadducees were like. Believing in miracles, that's what children believe in. That's naive, if you will. These folks, if you will, they were what might, we might call the educated elite. And I'm not against education. But they were the people that had it all figured out. And they would be kind enough to explain it to you sweet, cute people and pat you on the head as they do so. That was the Sadducees. Jesus says, beware of them. You mind if I take a drink? Would you prefer I did? <laughs> the last group, he says, is a person actually, he says, and beware of the leaven of Herod. Herod, a half Jew by the way, um, or quarter Jew actually, um, so sort of had some connection with religion but Herod was a skeptic. Herod was immoral, as we saw examples of in one of our previous studies. Herod was worldly. And each of those attitudes, those philosophies, they motivated him, they prompted him. That's what he lived his life based on. And so when Jesus talks here about being on your guard, the question then, whether you're talking about Pharisees, Sadducees, or Herod, some of us in here, we may be more inclined to be like the Pharisees, a hypocritical, self-righteous bunch of people. Some of us here might be more inclined to be like the Sadducees, sort of this proud, arrogant, I know everything, I even know more than God. Or some of us, our temptation might be to be more like Herod, worldly, skeptical, running after our own pleasures and things like that. And Jesus warns the disciples to be on their guard against each of these things. I've seen in my life Sometimes I'm pharisaical, 
Sometimes I'm Sadduceical, and sometimes I'm a lot like Herod. Jesus says, be on your guard against these types of attitudes. He says, watch out for them, as you see there in verse 15. Now that word, watch out, it's translated other versions as walk circumspectly. And you can see in the word circumspectly, spect, the idea of like our spectacles, our glasses, our eyes, what we're looking at, circum, around. It's the idea of walking in such a way that you're on your guard. I shared the example years ago, the first time I ever went to play paintball. That was for me the closest I had ever gotten to war and how freaked out I was by every little piece of noise that was there, the squirrel that was walking and hit a branch, how it freaked me out here. I was walking circumspectly, waiting to get shot. Well, Jesus says here, be watchful. He says, watch out. That's the word, walk circumspectly. And that's this, it's walking, knowing that there's something that one needs to be on their guard against, and then to walk in such a way that you are on your guard against that. So we all can know there's something out there that wants to bring me down, right? We can know that. That's not walking circumspectly. Walking circumspectly is not only knowing there's something to be on our guard against, but it's walking in such a way that you are on your guard against that. The Apostle Peter, later in the New Testament, he writes this in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. There's the word. He says, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You need to be watchful in your walk because there is an adversary seeking to bring you down. Those words that Peter wrote weren't just to a, a couple group of people or a few people. They're to every one of us that names the name of Christ. The devil will seek to bring you down in your walk with Jesus. He is your adversary. But here's the thing. The devil's outside of my life, right? Outside of my soul. He's not inside of me. He's outside trying to trip me up. There's also an adversary to your soul on the inside of every one of us that is in this room. And that's you yourself. That's your flesh is what the Bible calls it. And so if you're a Christian, you've been reborn by the Spirit. There's a new man living inside of you, seeking to reign inside of you. But there's also that old man seeking to live inside of you and reign inside of you. And so the believer then, we need to be on our guard, not just against our adversary, the devil, but we need to be on our guard against the temptations on the inside of us as well. Our flesh, which is our, the adversary to our spirit. And so let me just ask you a couple questions. We'll get done here soon enough. They pushed the game back to four. So we got plenty of time. All right, everything's fine. But do you ever stop and just sort of take inventory of where you are spiritually? You ever just kind of pull back? Oftentimes we don't because, you know, we're just sort of running and it's another day and I need another quiet time and you, you move on for a particular day. It's another Sunday, another week has gone by. But do you ever take time to just pull back and consider what are the attitudes that are driving you? Or is there hypocrisy sort of forming within you? where you're doing certain things in one place but not in another? Is there worldliness like Harrow that is sort of settling in and so on? Is there pride or arrogance, self-righteousness or bitterness or unforgiveness? Do you ever stop from the madness of the wheel, get off, and think through these things? 
Well, you should. And, you know, we're fortunate. Here we are. We're coming up on the start of a new year. And a lot of people do those kinds of things at the beginning of a new year or maybe the beginning of a new month or the beginning of a new school year. They just sort of stop and they consider. Because, again, hypocrisy, self-righteousness, worldliness, bitterness, unforgiveness, all those things, bigotry, all those things, like leaven, if they enter into your life, if not dealt with, they will begin to permeate your life. And so you better stop from time to time and consider if those things have entered in. And as Paul says, or as Jesus says here, be on your guard against those things. And so I'm just going to pose some questions to you. Maybe we'll get them out this week through an email so you have them there. You can go back and you can listen, or you can write really, really fast this morning. But here's some questions. Number one, have you become more consumed with self than service? Have you become more consumed with yourself than service to others, your family, your friends, your coworkers, your community? And the second question, have you begun to some degree to determine your righteousness based on the things that you do rather than the things that God has done? Have you begun to determine your righteousness based on the things you do rather than the things the Lord has done? Here's a third question. Have you become more interested and driven to possess the things of this world and storing up treasures in this world rather than storing up treasures in heaven. That's a good thing to stop and consider. Maybe even take your checkbook. You know what they are? Remember checkbooks? Take your statement you get from your bank and pull back and look at your debit card expenses. Look at your expenses. And that'll give you a good indication of what you're spending your money on and so on and so forth. Take inventory. I'd recommend, oh, you'll probably have off most of us here on, on New Year's Day or whatever. That's a good day to have a longer, quiet time. And just take some time and ask yourself these questions. Take inventory to see if these things, these influences, have begun to enter in and are taking up residence. Now, last point I'm going to make. All right, so you do that. You're sitting there on Wednesday morning. You're having an extended quiet time. You're considering these things. What do you do then, when, or if you discover, you know what, they are entering in? I have been doing things just because other people see me. And I, there's things I would never do if people are watching and so on. Or I have become more worldly and selfish and so on. Well, I, I would suggest that these three things you can do, and we're going to finish up with this soon. First, give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord that he was kind enough to reveal that to you and say, say, Lord, you're good. And so this isn't one of those, you know, Lord, why are you always nagging me? It's not that at all. It's one of those, thank you, Lord, that my heart was soft enough that you could enter in. So first thing you do is you give thanks that he made you aware. Secondly, you agree with him. You confess. Remember that word? Confess means to agree. You agree with the Lord that those things are taking up root in your life. And that they're not good for you. You know, Lord, you are right. I have been harboring bitterness. I have been unwilling to forgive people. I have been running after myself. And so on and so forth. And then finally, you commit yourself in that instance, in a fresh way, to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow the Lord. And then if you find you fail later in that day, you go through that whole process again. Thank you, Lord, for showing me even here right now. I agree with you, Lord. It's not good for me. 
Lord, as I leave this bathroom in this quiet time of prayer, I want to walk with you in a way that honors you here at my place of business. You see how this works? And you do it again and again and again and again. The Apostle Paul, he said this. He said, I, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh, they war against the desires of the Spirit. They're opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Paul would also say in Galatians, he says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life, everlasting life. What a great reminder, isn't it? I didn't plan this. I didn't plan I was going to do some New Year's Eve message or whatever. But what a great reminder as we go into the new year to take regular inventory of our own spiritual walk, to ask the question, how we are doing. Are you further along in your walk right now than you were this time last year with Jesus? I hope your answer is yes. That we, we keep moving forward, right? And if it's not, you don't say, ah, well then throw it all out the window. You just start again today, afresh. Determined, when I get to the end of next year, I want to be further along than I am right now. Are you further along or have you drifted back? It's how we walk circumspectly. Amen? I do pray for you, even as I pray for myself, that your walk with Christ would flourish. Jesus loves every one of us. He created each one of us, and he desires such good for each one of us. And there's nothing better than to enjoy the sweetness of fellowship with him. That's what he wants for each one of us. And my prayer this year is that each one in this room and those who couldn't be with us today, that we would experience that. Would you pray that with us? Three of you? Thank you. <laughs> People here. All right, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for this word this morning. And Lord, even the timeliness of it as uh, we are considering what 2020 will hold for us. Lord, often we do this professionally, we do it personally, and Lord, we, uh, the most important area of our lives is spiritually. And so, Father, I do pray that uh, in your grace and in your mercy, you would minister to each one of our hearts from, Lord, that place of love, your desire for good things within us. And you'd show, Lord, those areas that should go and go quickly out of our lives. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.